Thank you, Barb. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Romans chapter 15. Begin at verse 14 today. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 15, and beginning with verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain." I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, as we've read your word once again, we rejoice in it, this record of Paul's travels, his aims, his ambitions in the gospel, and use this material day to shape us into similar people who are driven by a life lived in service to you, a reflection and enjoyment of the gospel, a knowledge of your mercies, of your provision, and a life lived under Jesus' lordship. Do that, we pray. And we'll give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did Paul write this letter to the Romans? 
That's actually a question that continues to get a lot of attention in studies on Romans. You see, as we've read through the letter, maybe you've noticed this, a lot of the material isn't congregation-specific. It's not always clear why Paul writes what he does. It's really the opposite of 1 Corinthians, where you read in that letter Paul saying things like, Now, it's been reported to me. Or, now, about the things you wrote to me. When you get statements like that, you have an idea that Paul is writing a letter to address problems in the congregation he's learned about, or to answer questions the Corinthians pose to him. But we don't get that in Romans. Not as clear. But as we come to the end of the book, finally, we get some hints as to why Paul wrote this now legendary letter and why he shaped it the way he did. And surprisingly, the hints come in the section we might be tempted to skip. You see, here at the end of Romans, I know you'd never skip it. You'd skim it, though, right? So here you've got this extended discussion of Paul's future travel plans. It's kind of like the genealogies in the Old Testament. probably doesn't strike us as the most relevant material for our spiritual lives. I mean, that's great that Paul wanted to go to Spain. How does that help you when maybe you don't want to go to work tomorrow? But I want to extend an invitation to look closely at what Paul says here and to see that when Paul gives us his traveling plans, he's actually giving us more than just an itinerary. You see, everything Paul does, at least in the major flow of his life, he does for the sake of the gospel. We'll see that as we go through these verses. And this discussion of his travel plans is really a window into his view of the gospel and the effect it can have in our lives. And that focus then gives us the clue as to why Paul wrote this book that we've considered now for a little more than a year. So let's give our attention to this passage today, which tells us why Paul wrote Romans to you. And Paul gives us four reasons. First, to help you grow spiritually. Paul begins this passage with a commendation of the Romans' spiritual maturity. He writes in verse 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Now, that's high praise for a group of Christians Paul has never met. How did he know these things about the Romans? Well, he probably learned them from his good friends Priscilla and Aquila, his co-workers in Christ Jesus. He greets them in the next chapter. He met this couple in Corinth when they were exiled from Italy. Remember, we have record that uh, Claudius made all the Jews leave Rome. And there is a secular record that says it was because of fighting over one Crestus which is probably a misspelling of Christ. Uh, Disputes over Christ caused Claudius to say, okay, I want all the Jews to leave Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they're exiled from Rome. They meet Paul and they travel with him for a season. They eventually return to Rome. And so they are probably his main source of information. But regardless of all that, here's the three things Paul knows about the Romans. First, They are full of goodness. And I have come to love 
this word. The idea is they are upright in conduct. In some contexts, it specifically even refers to kindness and generosity. Quite simply, Paul says, these are good people. And I know we're not supposed to talk that way, right? Because of human sinfulness. But when God the Spirit works in you through the gospel, he transforms you into a good person. That's what these Romans are. That's what you're becoming by the Spirit. Second, they are filled with knowledge. So they know all that is necessary for the Christian life. And maybe that explains why they are good people. Their goodness flows from their knowledge. And lastly, they are competent to instruct one another. So they've not only reached a certain level of maturity, but they possess the ability to continue to progress in their spiritual growth. And not as individuals, but as a community. They are able to instruct one another. They can help one another through counsel, find the good path they should go down, avoid the foolish path, and embrace the way of life. That's the life they live together in the gospel. And these are the things Paul commends them for. Now, after saying those nice things, and I believe Paul is sincere, there comes a but, or in the NIV, a yet. Verse 15 reads, Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points, to remind you of them again. So there are some things Paul really needs to impress upon their memory. And when the Bible uses that language of remembering and forgetting, it's not talking about mental recall. It's talking about obeying and disobeying. Despite the Roman spiritual maturity, which is sincere, there are areas in which they need to grow. I mean, Paul just finished talking about one of these in Romans 14, in the beginning of chapter 15. Accept one another without quarreling over disputable matters. That's the most specific he gets in this letter. And he probably wasn't telling them something that they had never heard. He probably wasn't telling them for the first time in Romans 12, offer your body as a living sacrifice. But sometimes we don't need more information. We just need to realize more implications of the gospel. We need to see all the ways the gospel works itself out in our lives. Friends, you're going to spend your whole life doing this. And God has given you his word to be a reliable guide in the pursuit of wisdom and spiritual maturity. This word will bring you to Christ. And Christ, by his spirit, will make you more like God. And Paul's whole job is to advance that work. And the rest of verse 15 and 16, he says, God has given me grace so that I can serve Christ to the Gentiles like a priest serving in the temple. And as he serves Christ to the people, so he will in turn offer the Gentiles to God as an acceptable offering. And what will make this Gentile offering acceptable? That'd be a strange concept in the light of the Old Testament. What will make it acceptable? The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And so Romans has given us the gospel. In many ways, Paul wrote this letter just to say, this is my gospel. It can establish you. It can help you grow spiritually. That's why we have this letter. 
There's the second reason. Paul wrote it to highlight what Christ has accomplished in you. Paul talks about why he wrote the letter, and that leads him to this extended reflection upon the nature of his work among the Gentiles. Again, it might just sound like Paul discussing facts, but notice how he uses it to be a window into the gospel. Let's ask this question again. How have the Gentiles become an acceptable offering? Because according to verse 18, Christ has led them to obey God. What a great summary of God's work among them. Paul is using obey here as an umbrella term. That is your total response to God. It begins with faith. It moves to obedience. Paul opened this letter in chapter 1. He had a lot to say, didn't he, about the disobedience of the Gentiles. But now he highlights their obedience to God in the gospel. And what would move these Gentiles to lay aside their former way of life and submit to the lordship of a crucified Jewish Messiah? Well, Paul speaks in verse 19 of the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit working powerfully convinced them to submit to Jesus as Lord. And that phrase, signs and wonders, the Bible uses that to discuss the events connected with the Exodus, the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of the Apostles. And regardless of whether that is something we should still look for in our day, sometimes people want to know, does that still accompany the preaching of the gospel? Rather than going down that road, notice Paul also refers to the power of the Spirit of God. And there's no debate over whether or not that power is available. That answers the question, what would change Gentile hearts? The power of the Spirit of God. That would change Gentiles and Jews as well. That just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so the Spirit gives life to the spiritually dead and changes their hearts, our minds, our wills, lives in us and among us in order to shape us into the image of God's Son. So what has God accomplished in you? Well, one, he's convinced you to embrace as Lord a king whom you cannot see. And he's convinced you to spend your life serving a God that many people think does not even exist. But not only that, he's convinced you this God has raised his son from the dead. So the God whom you cannot see has done something that you have never observed and do not observe in everyday life. And that is your hope for the present and for the future. You make life decisions based on those truths. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's good historical evidence for the resurrection. I think there are solid reasons to believe, and they comfort my faith. But at the end of the day, we walk by faith and not by sight. And it is the witness of the Holy Spirit working through the word that brings you to faith in the Son and trust in the Father. And throughout Romans, Paul has highlighted over again, this is what Christ 
has accomplished in you. And if he's celebrating what God has done, it's in order to spur us on to continue in that work. That's why Paul wrote us this letter. Let's look at a third reason. To inspire you to give to those in need. Now, right here in the middle of this discussion of the nature of Paul's ministry, he introduces this topic of his travel plans. He says at the end of verse 19, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. He gives this image of a circle beginning with Jerusalem and going all the way around the Mediterranean area. And he claims, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I've completed my circuit, so to speak. Now, does Paul mean that everyone in that area has heard the gospel? No, he clarifies in verse 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundations. Paul had a strategy for church planning. And his strategy was to start churches in areas where there was no church, and then move on to a new area. Now, that doesn't mean he was in and out, you know, one week of special meetings, maybe two if something happens. No, he would stay in some places for two to three years, bringing people to faith establishing a community of believers, appointing elders and deacons, ministering to people day and night while often working with his own hands. But he would do this where it hadn't been done before. And it was his hope then that those churches would expand into the surrounding areas. And that's how whole regions would be evangelized. And Paul is saying that in the Mediterranean region, he has accomplished his task. According to verse 23, there is now no more place for me to work in these regions. Paul's ready to move on to an unevangelized area, and he has a very specific location in mind, Spain. Now, why Spain? Or starting at the end of verse 23 first, he says, Since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wants to do missions work in Spain, and he hopes that the Romans will assist him in that work. He'd like them to financially support his mission to Spain. It may even be that Paul's viewing Rome like a new Antioch. Remember how on all those missions trips, he'd start at Antioch and come back? He probably has Rome in mind to be the new base for a Western mission. And now we ask, okay, well, why Spain? Well, at the time, Spain represented the furthest reach of the Roman Empire. And Paul wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. And in fact... I love this. So great is his desire to do missions that his visit to Rome, you know, the visit he's really wanted to do for so many years, well, that's just going to be a mere layover on his way to Spain. Now, he's not blowing him off. He says, hey, I'll be refreshing your company for a while. But he's crystal clear. I want to stop here. And this is the main destination. However, before he can go to Rome in order to go to Spain... He needs to go to Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? 
verses 25 through 26 tell us. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. For some time, Paul has been collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem. The believers in Macedonia and Achaia have given generously to this project, and Paul intends to deliver these funds to Jerusalem before visiting Rome. And we would just ask, okay, but why does Paul tell us all this? Because he wants to inspire us to give to those in need. He says in verse 27, If the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. God has fulfilled his promises to Israel. I mean, those spiritual blessings really belong to the Jews. But God brought them in such a way that now the Gentiles have been, have been included with, with full status, full membership. Therefore, Gentile Christians are indebted to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Uh, and we'll see in just a minute, that includes both Christians and non-Christians. And Paul wants to inspire the Romans to share their material resources for both mercy ministries and missions. I especially want you to see that Paul seems equally concerned about both kinds of contributions. You see, the heritage of the social gospel has made evangelicals wary about mercy ministries and other social causes. But Paul does not share that concern. He wants to do missions in Spain among the unevangelized, and he wants the Romans to support him in that cause. But before he does that, he is compelled to deliver this offering to Jerusalem for the poor among the saints there. Paul will meet a material need and then meet a spiritual need. And the ground for his admonition to meet a material need is because of spiritual benefits received. So does Paul know the difference between the material and the spiritual? Yes, he distinguishes them, but he does not separate them. And Paul wrote us this letter to move to give to those in need. And so last observation, he wrote us this letter to move us to pray for the success of the gospel. In verse 30, Paul asked the Romans to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. And then he gives two prayer requests in verse 31. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Now, this is why I said a moment ago that this offering is for both believers and unbelievers. First, Paul is worried about danger from unbelievers in Judea in general. We read about some of that, don't we, in the book of Acts. A full riot started when Paul finally made it to Jerusalem. But he's also worried that the Lord's people in Jerusalem may not favorably receive 
this offering. Now, why would Christians in Jerusalem not receive an offering for their needs? Well, it could be that they're mainly Jewish Christians, and so they would view a gift from mainly Gentile Christians unfavorably. Why? They're still getting used to this idea of Jew-Gentile equality. Again, think back to everything we saw in Romans 14 and 15. That may be one reason. But the fact that Paul mentions the Lord's people in Jerusalem in the same breath as the unbelievers in Judea, that makes me think there is overlap between the two groups. There are Jewish Christians in Jerusalem Paul intends to help, but he also intends to help Jewish unbelievers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. They're all poor. And so as there are needs there, he will strive to meet those needs. He's using the phrase, the Lord's people generally, to refer to both groups in light of God's work in history. But since that offering may not be favorably received, Paul appeals to one thing money can't buy, the power of God in answered prayer. And he wants these Romans, put yourselves in my shoes. Join me in this struggle by praying for me. You can pray for my safety and you can pray for my success. And that is something that we can all likewise do. We can join the great work of God in the world today simply by praying for the success of the gospel for the safety of gospel ministers, for mercy needs and mercy ministries. Paul wrote us this letter in order to move us to pray for the success of the gospel and to continue to build us up in the faith. So let's pray for the Spirit to do that work here among us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would pause here in your presence to to bow in our hearts to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to say thank you for reigning over us with such mercy and grace. So we pray that you would make us gospel-shaped people, people who obey God, who yield to you the obedience of faith, the obedience which is faith, and the obedience which flows from faith, and that we know the life-transforming power of the gospel, the unifying work of the gospel, the humbling and sanctifying work of the gospel, and that we'd, we'd strive together then with one another and with other believers for the work of that gospel. And make it fruitful here in our midst. Do that here in Spartanburg County and beyond throughout the whole world. Continue your great work and help us to find our place in it. And we give you our sincere thanks and praise as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one last time, hymn 32. Great is thy faithfulness, hymn 32. I'll have you stand as we sing. After we finish singing, I'll have you sit again so we can make a presentation. So hymn 32, and please stand with me.